Hello and welcome to The Conversation. I am Mark Thompson. It is great to have you here. What a show. We will get right into it. Uh, investigative journalist Vicki Ward is joining us. She's written a lot on the high-end world of real estate and real estate investment and the shady deals that are oftentimes made in that world back in New York. And that world is, of course, that same world that birthed Jared Kushner, Donald Trump, and Ivanka. And so Vicky's latest piece, and as I say, she's an award-winning journalist, so very well-researched and very well-detailed. The book is called Kushner, Inc., Greed, Ambition, Corruption. So, Vicky, as you join us, we're on the doorstep of getting the Mueller report, or a wildly redacted version that I suspect will be, uh, you know, anything, will kind of leave us short of what is anticipated. But all the talk about the Mueller report and all the anticipation of the Mueller report to this point has really squeezed out of the media headlines a huge story in Washington, which is what you detail in the book, and that is the naked corruption of Jared Kushner, Ivanka, as it, and as it relates to this White House and is dictating foreign policy. I do, and I, I, I hope, Mark, that in a way the book outlives the Mueller report, because I think that uh, the Mueller report is going to detail a little bit of the what, but my book is really the why, if that makes sense. My book lays out the motivations um, behind Jared Kushner's policymaking, both domestically and really importantly abroad. It lays out Ivanka's, um, you know, use of the government as kind of product placement. And so I, in a way, I, I think that the, the issue of Jared and Ivanka's security clearance is really going to live on. And if you read the book closely, it's not really about Russia as so much as it's about our the, the Middle East and the Kushner's financial problems. And um, I really hope that the lessons of the book stay with us because I think that the, the Mueller report ought to be a beginning and not an end. I mean, I hope that my book provides, shows that really. Well, I must say that in a way, I think the breadth of your book already is far more interesting than anything the Mueller report could come up with. And by that, I mean to watch what you detail in the book, the trail of money lead to yeah. American foreign policy is frightening. And as I say, it's farther reaching than anything in that Mueller report, regardless of what it says. Well, I think that's right. I mean, you know, the, really, when it comes to, to Russia, I think what the book shows is how Jared uh, pushed to save himself, really, throw Don Jr. under the bus. It was the cover-up that was more interesting in a way than any particular crime. And that Jared, as we know, didn't put um, his meetings with Russians or anyone else on his security clearance forms. But the, but the really interesting theme of my book is the Middle East. And the story of how Jared Kushner, who is extraordinarily controlled by his father, always has been controlled by his father, enters the government with this really difficult financial problem. The Kushner family has got this building, trophy building in New York, 666 Fifth Avenue. And Jared goes into the government with a clock ticking and a loan due of 1.4 billion on the building that was due on February uh, 2019. And domestic lenders and investors have made it very clear that they weren't going to touch this, this building with a 50-foot pole. So the only 
solution lay with foreign money. And you have to then look at everything Jared Kushner does abroad and in the Middle East in that context. That's such a great point. And in fact, I wonder if you, and you do it so uh, delicious, if I can use that word in your book, but even here, if you could just summarize that whole Qatari standoff and with the Saudi money and Qatari money being so relevant to American foreign policy. Right. I mean, this is sort of really shocking. I think it's the most shocking thing in the book. And it's certainly the thing that shocked Rex Tillerson, whose sort of biggest mistake was thinking that just because he had the job title Secretary of State, he he actually was Secretary of State because Jared Kushner immediately took the Middle East off of his desk. And it was Jared who pushed for the president's, the first US official visit to be to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which was something that really alarmed a lot of it much more experienced people in the State Department, the National Security Council. You know, Saudi Arabia we, is not a place that has sh- any shared democratic values uh, with the United States of America. Um, and, and what no one knew at the time was that Charles Kushner had met with Saudi Arabia's great rival in the region, the, 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 the rulers of Qatar. He'd met with the finance minister of Qatar, very small country where there's an American airbase, but it's very, very rich. And Charles Kushner had asked for a billion dollars to save his building and been turned down. So in that context, Jared is then pushing uh, the president towards Saudi Arabia and having very private um, communications with the Saudi, the future Saudi crown prince, nicknamed MBS. No one uh, around him has any uh, knowledge of what 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 is in these communications. But MBS, uh, we now know, had promised uh, Jared money, money for to subsidize his peace plan and money for who knows what else. What we do know is that the, the theme of this visit to Saudi Arabia was meant to be cooperation in the Gulf. And 10 days after it, the Saudis made a complete mockery of the whole thing by uh, blockading Qatar. Rex Tillerson, who was with the then Defence Secretary, James Mattis, in Australia, was utterly horrified because um, Qatar has an American airbase. That is our security uh, at risk in the region. And Rex Tillerson and James Mattis both knew that the Saudis would never have dared lead a blockade of a country that has an American airbase without getting a green light from the White House. And they knew that the only person who would have given that green light would have been Jared Kushner because no one else had, you know, Jared Kushner was in charge of all communications between the US and Saudi Arabia. So far from solving Middle East peace, Jared actually uh, pretty much almost put us into a war in the region. Then as as the clock ticks on, this blockade continues. Um, The Saudis are not able to get what they really want from it, which is to topple the rulers of Qatar and gain access to their extraordinary wealth. He tries a different route to get wealth. He rounds up uh, members of the Saudi uh, ruling families. The only branch he doesn't round up and imprison and, and take money from is his own family. He does all this under the 
he he claims that he's he's doing a, a drive out of corruption. Well, yeah, Rex what a coincidence that there is no corruption in his own family. That's just well, that's uh, such good Rex luck. Tillerson pointed out to Jared Kushner, who of course didn't want to know, and Jared Kushner is busy working on getting rid of Rex Tillerson, who's a, an obstacle to all to all of this. Um, and he succeeds in doing that. The irony of the whole thing is that in the spring of 2018, the Saudis arrive, the Saudi Crown Prince MBS arrives in Washington and the president asks him for more money, asks him for $4 billion to help rebuilding Syria. And the Saudi Crown Prince drags his feet. Enter the Qataris who see an opportunity and they arrive in Washington and basically say, we've got plenty of money, but we need help with the blockade. Within two weeks, Mark, within a two-week time period, the US withdraws its support of the blockade. And the Kushner's building, 666 Fifth Avenue, is miraculously bailed out in an extraordinary deal that nobody, nobody in real estate in New York thinks makes any sense at all. A Canadian firm, Brookfield, whose largest outside investor is the QIA, the Qatari Investment Authority, that is the Qatari government, basically does a $1.3 billion loan, a 99-year lease, all of which they pay up front. You don't have to be good at math or know much about real estate to know that that is a nonsensical, uneconomic deal. It's crazy. I'm so glad you make the point. I mean, at every point in that story, it becomes clearer that it's American foreign policy for sale, and it's all about money. Exactly correct. It's and that is, it was when it was when um, the Saudis blockaded Qatar that Rex Tillerson and James Mattis realized that Jared Kushner wasn't just sort of an annoying. Uh, son-in-law to the president who inserted himself and got in the way. He was actually really dangerous for this country. You know, uh, I want people to uh, check this book out also because there is a there are many, many other details of not only the Kushner family, but Ivanka, how she fits into this and why she wanted to bond so badly with Kushner and how uh, there, there are a lot of, I guess, uh, personality traits that you explain yes. so very well with the histories of, of these families, both Ivanka in the Trump world and uh, Jared in the Kushner world. So please check out the book. Again, it's Vicki Ward's Kushner Inc. Greed, Ambition, Corruption. Vicki Ward, you know I'm a fan. Thank you for joining Thank us today. Thank you. The conversation continues in a moment. Welcome back to the conversation. Mark Thompson here for Jank, and excited to have Corey Doctorow join us. Corey is a, is an activist with a science and technology background. Quite an impressive guy, actually. Special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, an MIT Lab Research Associate. Yeah, Media Lab. MIT stops most conversations, don't you think? You throw <laughs> those three letters down and. Yeah, I mean, they, they pay for the work I do at EFF, which is uh, related to the book we're talking about today. Yes, and the book is radicalized. And uh, the book is uh, steeped in sci-fi and technology and speaks, though, to so many of the issues that are going on in contemporary society. Uh, uh, privacy, lack of privacy, um, 
uh, immigration and such. Give us a sense of what Radicalized is about. These are four different novellas, yeah. stories. Yeah, and the thing that kind of binds them together is this idea that what's more important than what technology does is who it does it for and who it does it to. That it's the power relationships, not the not the feature sheet that determines how technology will affect you. So, you know, the story you were talking about, Unauthorized Bread, is about... Um, people in refugee housing where part of the deal with the subsidy is that uh, every appliance is designed to suck every penny out of their pocket. The, like the toaster will only toast authorized bread from an authorized bakery and the washing machine will only wash authorized clothes and the dishwasher only washes authorized dishes. It's basically you know the same logic that says you can only buy your apps from one app store and you know Johnson & Johnson has an artificial pancreas that requires that you use their proprietary insulin. And you know you just extend that out. And since we always try our worst ideas, on people who, when they complain, no one listens. Refugees and prisoners and kids and mental patients and people on benefits, they're on the front lines of our worst technological ideas. Wow, I mean, it, it, I know it's fiction, but it's just so credible in a sense. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I call these my Trump derangement syndrome stories. I, I didn't plan on writing them. I was writing the third Little Brother book, and I wrote all four of these because these these ideas about sort of contemporary woes and the lack of narrative coherence in them. You know, like we get these uh, Trump headlines non-consensually shoved into our eyeballs all day, and it's impossible to make any kind of narrative thread out of them. And as a writer, you know, I want to figure out how it all fits together. And so by sitting down and narrativizing this stuff, I was able to like make it sensible for me. And some of them have happy endings, some of them have angry endings, but they're all about trying to figure out the underlying story. Well, I mean, you're a best-selling author, and if anybody can stitch it all together, it, it, it's you. The So that's the first story, which is called Unauthorized Bread. Yeah, and the topic then, is making that into a TV show. They're the folks from The Intercept. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That's great. Uh, and then uh, the second novella, is that Model Minority? or? Yeah, it's a story, it was inspired by Matt Teeby's book about the murder of Eric Garner, uh, I Can't Breathe. And it's a story about Superman intervening in a, in a similar police beating. Uh, and, and it was inspired in part by like my own atavistic feeling that you know when you see injustice, you just wish someone would interpose their body between the bad thing and the people it's happening to. And it's part of this kind of neoliberal idea that all of our problems have individual causes and individual solutions, that if only the right person we're wielding the baton, or if only the right person were there, then maybe we could solve it. And Superman figures out when he intervenes in this beating that not only is it not his story, it's the story of the man who is being beaten, but also that the white privilege he thought he was safe in is completely contingent on his continuing to support white supremacy. That like, it only takes a hot second for commentators to say, this guy's not a white man, he's not even a human, he's not even a man, and how do we know that next year he won't be fighting for Syria or Iran? And so he realizes that he's actually been on the wrong side all along. And moreover, that his good friend Bruce Wayne has been selling the predictive policing tools to the New York City Police Department is not part of the solution either. So it's fun, there's so many issues wrapped up in that, but one of which is that we, there's an implied relationship to police authority, right? And confidence in police authority, if you wanna think of it that way. But it's called, but those are those confidences are called into question. Yeah, and also that, you know, the way that, 
that um, we kind of add a kind of layer of, of empirical face wash to pol racist policing these days is we throw machine learning at it. We, we do this, this, uh, this uh, predictive policing stuff. Often uh, these contracts are created in secret with cities. They're bound by non-disclosure. The, the cities have non-disparagement clauses. so They can't tell you when they're not working. And um, these contracts take biased policing data, data from biased policing practices. They run it through an algorithm and they say, who should we go police? And the algorithm is only as good as the data that you fed it. And so it says, go police the people you've been policing all along. But since math can't be racist, now it's empirical. Wow, wow, wow. I, I love that you bring this technologist perspective to this and it really does, as, you, as I say, it's, it's based in a reality and then as a writer, you, you take it to another level. So the next story is, uh, is called what? The last one is radicalized. Ra well, the the, uh, the collection is also called radicalized. Yeah, it's please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. sure. It, it's a story that asks what would happen if um, traumatized, entitled, respectable white dudes, rather than killing their ex-wives or shooting up brown people in mosques, finally decided to start killing the healthcare executives whose callous decisions doom the people they love the most to long, lingering, horrible deaths. And, and it's about people who are on message boards that are nominally for husbands of wives and fathers of children who are wasting away of, of illnesses, but it really becomes a place where people talk about the fact that their insurers have declined to cover the illnesses that their loved ones have. And like incel message boards, these are message boards where instead of the people who've been there the longest being the people who figured it out and have stuck around to help other people, they're the people who, who figure it out leave. And the only people who are left behind are the people who are the most irredeemable, the most broken. And they're the ones who start whispering into the ears of these, these traumatized people, you know, if you're going to kill yourself, don't let it go to waste. And it's about the, the, the narrative of, of radicalization that we have in our world, which is that radicalization happens when someone with a bad idea sits too close to you. And you hear the bad idea, and the next thing you know, you've got the bad idea too, and you're out there doing something terrible. When you actually read up on, on, on radicalization, you know, you read the case studies Boston University did of, of um, occupied territory suicide bombers. The biggest predictor of whether someone is going to do something terrible is whether they've been traumatized. That it's the trauma that makes people vulnerable to being someone whispering in their ear, don't let it go to waste. It's the suicidal, it's, it's being suicidal that makes you a suicide bomber. And since all of our response to radicalization is based around this idea, like the bad apology, I'm sorry you're angry at me, have you tried being less angry at me? I'm sorry you're traumatized, maybe you could be less traumatized, not that we're gonna do anything about the trauma, our response never works. So the story asked what would happen if finally white domestic terrorists did things that could no longer be attributed to lone wolves because they're attacking healthcare executives and senators instead of powerless people and, and how we respond to that. And what we do when we finally realize that rights are never given, they're always taken. And sometimes that means that you're rooting for people that you later realize are monsters. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, I can't imagine, by the way, that healthcare executives, when, whenever the, those in the ivory tower, those in power, are threatened, it seems, mm -hmm. in any way by these radicalized entities in your in your story, for example, you wouldn't think that they'd be able to get out of the starting line, right? Well, you know, this is the big question, right? Is how many of these attacks does it take before before finally these two countervailing societal forces that uh, violent mass murdering white men can never be terrorists, but also that no one's allowed to kill oligarchs? Uh, when sure. when when does the one override the other? How does that? You know, I figure it's like six suicide bombings. It's six. <laughs> the super rich have had enough, and that's that's it. Uh, 
Mask of the Red Death. Yeah. That's your last novella in this collection yeah. called Radicalized. And yeah. it's the most apocalyptic of them. It's a story about rich preppers who have luxury bunkers that they plan to go and hide in when the event happens. And and it's, you know, there are a whole bunch of people who think that when things break down, the way that you fix them is by cowering in your luxury bunker while someone else does the hard work of getting everything going again. And those people tend to be well off, right? Those people tend to be convinced that the pores are coming to eat them when the lights go out, right? And, you know, when you think about it for even 10 seconds, we live in a big, complicated technical society. And, you know, everything from like sanitation and public health to communications and logistics requires a lot of specialized knowledge. It requires a lot of cooperation, right? Like our world is a tribute to the fact that we're fundamentally cooperative people. Otherwise, we would not have the screens behind us and the clothes we're wearing and the signal that this is going out on, right? And so, um, these bedwetting cowards in their luxury bunkers are part of the problem. And they very quickly learn in the hardest way possible that it doesn't matter how many guns you lay in. It doesn't matter how many plans you have to emerge with your thumb drives full of Bitcoin and your gemstone quality uh, uh, precious stones. You will never have the Frazetta warlord future because you cannot shoot germs, that we have a shared microbial destiny, and if the corpses are piling up outside, eventually you're going to get cholera too. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, so those four novellas are contained in Radicalized. Before I lose you, and, sure. I, and I may get, uh, I'm angry at myself for asking this question almost, but I just feel like you're the right guy to ask it to. Technology, net benefit, or are now we getting to the point where AI and these things that it seems as there's so many potential benefits associated with uh, may be working against sort of the evolution of society in a positive way. So here's the thing. The Apple II Plus came out while Ronald Reagan was on the campaign trail, right? Almost everything that, that technology does that's terrible can be attributed to monopoly and regulatory capture, not to the technology itself. Why is it that Facebook lost 15 million American users last year, but they all ended up on Instagram, which is a Facebook property. Because Ronald Reagan and Bork and the Chicago School dismantled antitrust. They allowed companies to grow by buying their competitors. We have companies that are too big to fail. We have companies that are too big to jail. We have companies that are too big to regulate, where one stupid decision from Mark Zuckerberg ripples out over 2.3 billion lives, right? So technology is not a tool that has a good or a bad valence. Technology is wielded by people who either have checks on their power or who are able to exercise their power with impunity and without consequence. And if we think that we can solve our problems by limiting what technology we have rather than by limiting the power of the companies that make them, we will be sorely disappointed. Wow, that's just great and so well said, as I would expect from best-selling writer. Radicalized is the book by Cory Doctorow. Check it out, technology. Sci-fi, all woven into the texture of modern society. Thanks, Corey. Thank you very much. Appreciate you being here. As always, such a pleasure to spend some time with you guys. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, bye-bye.